Well, right away, I would like to begin with a statement that I think summarizes much of our passage here, much of our text that Pastor Jim just read. It's a statement which honestly is a little convicting at first, but as we go through the text this morning, my hope is that you'll start to see that it's actually quite encouraging. The statement's this, you are not the point. I am not the point. Or to say it another way, life is not about you. Life is not about me. The world isn't about you. The world isn't about me. See, we often admit, right, that the world doesn't revolve around us, that we're not the center of the world. But here's a more convicting biblical truth. Your life is not about you. My life is not about me. But there's another side to this as well. Although you are not the point, you do have a purpose. Although you are not the center, you do matter. If you trust in Christ, if you are in Christ, you've been swept up into something grand. You are not the point, but you exist to point through your life to Christ. And that's what our text is about. We're not the point. We exist for another. Jesus is the point. The Bible says all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. And when it says it, it means it. All things, meaning your life and my life, he's the point. We were made for him. And I just want to say that's true this morning whether you personally trust in Jesus or not. You were made for him, and in the end, he will be magnified through you. So we're not the point, brothers and sisters. We were designed to point to another, and as we'll see from this text, that's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. So here in this passage, what we're going to see is a humble example of John the Baptist. Humble example of John the Baptist. He's a very important person in the New Testament. He prepared the way for Jesus. But as we'll see, he's also somebody who recognized that he is not the point. He recognized that his life was not about him. And he saw that this was a good thing. He's just a witness. He's just a pointer. So we'll be looking at his life, we'll be looking at his example, we'll be looking at his humility, we'll see how he defined his life, and we'll see how it applies to us this morning, especially as Christians. So here's a little roadmap, a little outline of our time together, if that helps you out. We're going to separate our text into three different parts. In the text, what we're about to see is John the Baptist is going to be asked a very simple question. The question is, who are you? It's a question we can all start to ask ourselves. Who are you? And John answers in three parts. In the first part, we're going to see who John was not. Who John was not. That's verses 19 through 21, the first half of that first paragraph. And we're going to see there who he was not and how it applies to, to us and who we're not. Second, we're going to see who John was. So who he's not, who he was. It's verses 22 to 23. We're going to see who we are. And then third, there's this last paragraph, verses 24 through 28, where we see one last important thing 
that God wants us to know about John and about ourselves. So very simply, who John wasn't, who John was, and then one last important thing. And before we even begin, just, to, just so you know, here God does set forth John the Baptist as an example. And to give some weight to that, to some weight to this example we're about to look at, I just want to let you know that it was Jesus, our Lord, who said this about John the Baptist. He said, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. That's incredible. That's bold. According to Jesus, this was a great man. So the question for us this morning is, okay, so what does John the Baptist say about himself? How can we learn from his example? So let's start. We're going to be in verses 19 through 21. We're going to start with seeing who John wasn't. Who John wasn't. We're going to start just by reading verse 19. If you're going to look down in your Bible, just verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So you can kind of see that that's an introductory verse. John the writer says, this is the testimony of John. He's setting up these next two paragraphs. This is his testimony. And that word testimony, just so you know, in the original language, is the same word as the word witness. So this is what John was testifying about. This is what he was bearing witness to. And that's important thus far, because if you've been with us thus far in the Gospel of John series, you might remember that in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist is a witness to the light. That's his role. He's a witness to the light. So here, this is the witness of John the Baptist. This is what his witness looked like. So we can start to ask, okay, how did he point to the light? How did he witness to Jesus? And so their question is simple. Who are you? It sets the stage. They see his life. They see so many people following him, and they're wondering, who are you? What does your bearing witness look like? What's your life about? And right away, before we even read on, we can apply that to ourselves, can't we? You too, I too, we witness with our lives. We bear testimony to what we think is important by how we live. And not only that, but people also are looking at your life, whether consciously or subconsciously, and they're asking, who are you? What are you all about? What's important to you? So let's go on and let's see how John answers and how it applies to ourselves. So again, we're seeing who he's not. We're going to read verses 20 and 21. If you want to look down. So he's, they, they ask, who are you? Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So you see how John responds first. In verse 20, he says he is not the Christ. We'll dig into that more in a second. But right away, John wants to say, I am not the awaited Messiah. I'm not the one you're looking for. Second, you see in verse 21, he says he's not Elijah. And why they asked him that is at the end of the Old Testament, in the last chapter of the book of Malachi, there is a promise that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And many anticipated, the people of John's day, a lot of them anticipated that this would be literally Elijah from the Old Testament resurrected. And that's why John says, no, 
up, not literally Elijah. That's what they were expecting. Now, you might know your Bible in other places, like the Gospel of Luke. It says that John does come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so he does fulfill that prophecy, but he says no here because he's not literally Elijah. That's what they were asking. So he's not the Christ, not Elijah. And the third thing there you see is he is not the prophet. They're not asking if he's a prophet. You'll notice the capital P if you're following along in the ESV. They're asking about a specific prophet. This comes from Deuteronomy 18 where God promised Moses, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. It is to him that you shall listen. This is some final prophet, somebody who would speak definitively for the Lord, and they're wondering if that was John, and he says no. In fact, Peter, in Acts 3, makes it pretty clear that that final speaker for God is none other than Jesus himself. So John is not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. But before we move on from who he's not, I want to show you in the text that these statements about who he's not are actually more important than we at first might realize. Who he's not is actually quite important. We don't want to just rush to who he is, who he's not. And I say that because in the paragraph, they're extremely emphatic. Maybe you notice the awkward verse 20. The awkward verse 20, right? How it begins. It says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That's strange, isn't it? I mean, why, why write that? I just want you to know to set, the, uh, to set that up a little bit. Uh, the early Christian writers, when they wrote the New Testament, they didn't waste any space. They didn't waste any space. They wrote on either papyrus or parchment, which was animal skins, and it was very expensive. And just so you know, they didn't even use spaces when they wrote the original letters and uh, Gospels of the New Testament. It was too expensive. This is what makes Bible study so exciting. Literally, every word really matters. And so the question is, okay, John, John the writer, why did you write that? And clearly, this statement, I am not the Christ, is very emphatic. It's very important. But there's something else really emphatic there, too. And this becomes even clearer in the original language, but it also is seen when you look at the Gospel of John as a whole. And many of you here might know that there are seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There are seven I am statements. For example, Jesus, Jesus later on is going to say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, etc. And also, there's more I am statements from Jesus where he's using that phrase to say that he is divine, that he is God. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, they pick up stones to throw at him because he's claiming to be the I am, to be God. And this comes, this I am, comes from Exodus 3. You might know the story of the burning bush where God reveals himself to Moses as the I am. And when you read it in Greek, the way it's written, the way I am is written, is clearly Jesus was referring to that burning bush. He says, I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. Why I bring that up is it's interesting is we, we have from John here another I am statement. But this time it's from John. In verse 20, he confessed, did not deny, but confessed. But notice it here, it's I am not 
It's I am not. So what that says there is John is saying that in comparison to Jesus, who this whole book is about, in comparison to God, in comparison to the I am, I am not. I'm not the point. I'm not God. I'm not the bread of life. I'm not the light of the world. And especially here, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. I bring that up, and that's important because that's part of his identity. Who he's not, that's part of how he bared witness. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. It might be something you need to hear every single day. You are not the I am. You are not the Christ. I mean, each one of you here this morning could memorize that. Part of the Bible, in a second, just memorize it in your head. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Now, we started our sermon like this, right, when we talked about us not being the point. And on the one hand, we said this is quite convicting. It's convicting, right, because we so badly want to be the center. We so badly want to be the fixer. We so badly want to be in control. We want to be the most important. We want to be the point. Or to use the language here, we want people to bear witness about us. We want people to point to us. And that's the essence of sin. That's the essence of sin. But not only sin, think about how much sorrow being like that brings too. How much slavery and fear comes from thinking that we're the point, that we're the center, that we're the one who can fix everything, that we're the Christ. How much uncertainty, how much disappointment when things don't go our way, how much frustration when we can't fix it, how much despair when we don't succeed, whatever that might mean for us. It all stems from thinking that we should be the point, that things should be about us that we should be able to give ourselves hope. That we should be able to give ourselves happiness or salvation. Essentially, that we should be our own Christ, our own Savior. But when we realize that we're not the center, that we're not the Christ, it's a breath of fresh air, isn't it? It's convicting, but it's very encouraging. You are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. We're sinners. We're people in need of the Christ. You don't need to know everything. You don't have to have it all under control. You don't need to be the restorer of the world. Christ is. You don't need to be the ultimate hope of your family. Christ is. You don't need to be the peace of your neighbors, of your co-workers. Christ is. Your goal, my goal, John's goal is not to be the Christ for others or for yourself. Instead, our goal is to point to Christ. And that brings us to our next point, to point to Christ. So now we're going to see who John was. So John's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, he's not the point. But who was he then? And who are we? The conversation continues. So we're going to look down at verses 22 and 23. So they said to him, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So you can sense the anxiety, if you put yourself in this, this scene, you can sense the anxiety of the peop- of, in the words of the people asking John this question. They want to know who he is. John, remember, has a huge following. And as we all know, people who have huge followings often are really prone to want to talk about themselves. And John's being so humble. And so they're saying, well, who are you then? Who are you? And John responds with a quote from the Old Testament, which we'll get into in a second. Quote from the Old Testament. I want you to see that we learn at least two details from that quote about who John was and who we are. The first is the most obvious one. The first is this. John's main role, who was he? His main role is to prepare and point to the Lord. You see that in the quotation, right? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. There's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 where God promises that one day he's going to finally bring his people back. That good news is finally going to come. And John says he's fulfilling that role. He's preparing the way for the Lord, the Savior, to come. He's pointing to the Lord. But there's something else really striking about that quote that John uses. And I want to spend a minute on it because I really think it can help our faith. I want to focus on who John is preparing the way for. Who? Now, clearly in the context, it's Jesus, right? The Lord. But what is striking is that John says this about Jesus, and that's incredible when you look at this verse in its original context. And if you could, I want you to see it for yourself. So if you could, could you go with me to Isaiah chapter 40? I think it's that important. If you're using the chair Bible, it's going to be on page 712, 712. So this, we're going to go and see the verse that John quotes when he says he's preparing the way for the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40. Page 712, if you have the Blue Bible. So we're on page 712, Isaiah chapter 40. It's going to be in verse 3. This is the verse that John's listeners knew and that John was quoting, and I want you to see it in, your, in its original context because there's something quite striking about it. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what I want you to notice, which is why we went here, is notice the capital L-O-R-D in that verse. The capital L-O-R-D. Maybe you've noticed that when you're reading the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament, almost on every single page. And what that is when you read in the Old Testament is that in Hebrew is the personal name of God. His name is Yahweh. Yahweh. The reason it's capital L-O-R-D is what ended up happening in the Jewish tradition. So after the whole Old Testament was written, the, the Jewish people became so reverent towards the personal name of God, the name that he revealed, his name is Yahweh, that anytime they saw it, they started writing L, they started writing Lord or Adonai instead. But in the original context, what Isaiah wrote. And what they knew was the original Hebrew is that Isaiah is saying that somebody's going to come who's going to prepare the way for Yahweh. 
For the only God, the Creator God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God. And so, you might already be seeing the connection. What's striking, what's stunning, is that John quotes this from Isaiah. And he says, I'm preparing the way for the Lord, which in the original context, I'm preparing the way for the God, preparing the way for Yahweh. And he's about to look at Jesus and say, there he is. That's incredible. Yahweh in the flesh. And I say that, and I think it hopefully helps your faith, because we already went over John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That is very clear that Jesus is God. And people try to come with with, uh, exegetical hurdles and say, well, maybe he's a God. It doesn't really work doesn't work. He's the God. But technically, technically, God is a title. Maybe you've never thought of that. God is a title. God is the word we use for the, the, the one, the being who's in control of all things. God is a title, just like king is a title. Now, there's only one God, but God technically is a title. But what's clear, why we went to Isaiah 40, is here it's beyond dispute. Jesus is God from John chapter 1, and here Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God. John is preparing the way for the Lord, for Yahweh, and he's about to say, there he is in the flesh. That's staggering. I think the people listening to John were starting to see that. So let's go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you have a chair Bible, you're on page 1053. John chapter 1. So we're asking again, who was John? And we've seen, first, he was a preparer, a pointer to the Lord. Specifically, he was pointing people to God. So that was his role, to prepare and point people to God. But there's another thing about John in that quote. This will be a lot quicker, but this is something that's very humble. And I want you to notice it in the first few words. He's not the Christ, so who is he? And he starts by saying, I am the voice of one. I'm the voice of one. He's a mere voice. And I don't want us to overlook that Because this is really significant in the Gospel of John, right? Because the Gospel of John thus far has been all about the Word. The message. And John's saying, I'm just a voice. Think of it this way. When you hear somebody speaking, anybody, you don't over-fixate on the sound they're making. You don't over-fixate on the voice. You focus on what's being said. And so John's saying here, yes, I'm a communicator. Yeah, I have a life, but I'm not the message. I'm not the word. I'm a mere voice. So who is John? Prepare and point to the Lord and a mere voice. And brothers and sisters, that's you and I too. We too are a mere voice. We're not that important. We will fade away just like a voice. But with our fleeting voice, we can point with our lives to the message. We can point to the word. Or we can spend our lives pointing to our fleeting selves. So John, 
Just like John the Baptist, we are a voice, but also just like John the Baptist, we too have privilege, the privilege of being pointers to the Lord with our lives. Now, just to be clear, each one of us in this room does not have some Old Testament text that we're going to fulfill. Sorry to break it to you. That's just not how it works. But the same principle does apply. We're not the point. We're pointers. And that's a great thing to remember every single day. As you wake up, as you go to work or you go to school, as you stay home with your kids, as you seek to love your family and interact with people, your goal, your privilege is to point to Christ by how you live. It's to show people that you aren't the Savior. You aren't the best. You aren't the kindest. You aren't the most lovely, but you know him who is. This is an awesome thing to live for. It gives us purpose to every single thing you do. And whether you're driving to work or making phone calls or or changing diapers or sitting around the dinner table, what you do matters. You won't be perfect. You're not the Christ. But you can point people to Christ. You know he cares for you. You know he loves you. You know he's the point. So maybe practically something for you to try maybe this week is just every single morning, pray this prayer, Lord, help me to realize I'm not the point. I'm not the Christ. But also help me to point people to you. Help my life to, live, to be lived in such a way that I point people to you, to your grace, to your hope, to your love. And I just want to say it's freeing to pray like that. It's freeing to pray like that. The pressure is off, brothers and sisters, to be the Savior. The pressure is off to be the most successful, to be the most brilliant, to be the most impressive, to be so attractive. The pressure is off to be the ultimate hope of your coworker, the ultimate hope of that friend, the fixer of your child. The pressure is off. You are not the Christ, but you can point people to him. You can bear witness to everything he is, to what he offers by how you live your life. What a privilege. What a reason to be alive. So we saw who John wasn't, who John was, and that brings us to our final paragraph. Final paragraph. Now, I just want to say, this paragraph, when I was studying this, seemed a little strange. Because John's witness, his identity, was pretty clear from the paragraph we just read. He's not the point, he's not the Christ, but he's fulfilling this role, pointing people to the Lord. So the question is, why include this paragraph? I think it's because there's at least one more thing that God wants us to know about John and about ourselves. So if you want to look down, we're going to read verses 24 through 28. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So they continue to question him, right? John, remember, is baptizing in droves. And so they're wondering, okay, if you're not these figures, then what authority do you have to baptize? 
And notice John's answer. It's very strange. Essentially, he says this. They're saying, why do you baptize? He says, I baptize, but I'm not worthy. But somebody really great is coming. Doesn't really answer the question. Why are you baptizing? I do baptize, but somebody really great is coming, and I'm not worthy. So why include this paragraph? And among a few things, I think it's for this point for us this morning. It adds the fact that Jesus is that great. And even if we spend our whole lives pointing to him, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. And you see that clearly in the illustration John uses in verse 27 with the idea of he's not worthy to untie his sandals. Just so you know, in ancient times, disciples of rabbis, disciples, would do a lot of things for the rabbis. But the rabbis said the one thing they would never ask their disciples to do is to untie their sandals. The reason was that was reserved for the lowest slave. So maybe you're seeing what John's saying. He's saying he's, not worth, he's definitely not worthy to be a disciple of Jesus. But not only that, he's not worthy to be Jesus' lowest slave. He's that unworthy because Jesus is that great. And so it is for any genuine Christian. We're not the point. We're not the Christ. We're pointers. What a privilege. But even as pointers, we are not worthy to be. We are not worthy to be. It's humbling. But I think it's actually really helpful for us. I think it's helpful, especially in our current culture, a current culture where many of us have been taught that in order to be loved or to have any purpose, we must have something commendable in ourselves. There must be something intrinsically good in us that gives us worth, that we must have a certain, certain level of merit or deservingness in us in order to be happy, in order to have some sort of purpose. For example, you may think you need a certain amount of money in order to have worth or to have certain level of grades in order to matter or to look a certain way. But let the Bible release you from that. That's not true. In yourselves and what you do, that's not where you find your worth, your value. We're not worthy in ourselves. I want to make it really clear. There's no worth, deservingness, merit in us that made Jesus die for us. We're unworthy. But listen, this is important. This is the good news. If you are a Christian, you're not worthy in yourself. But Christ did die for you. He does love you. He does care for you. He knows you and loves you personally. And because of Him, you now have been given value and worth more than you could ever have imagined. The worth isn't in you. It comes from God, who because of Christ, values you more than you could fathom. In ourselves, we're not worthy. As John says here, just getting it from the text, as John says here, we shouldn't even get to be Christ's slaves. But because of grace, 
which means because of nothing in ourselves, because of grace, we get to be God's sons and daughters. We get to be adopted into God's family. We're not worthy. And so in some of our three parts, here's what we saw. Who John wasn't, he wasn't the point, and neither are we. We're not the Christ, and that's a good thing. Second, we saw who John was. He was a pointer to Christ, and so are we. It's a privilege to be able to live a life like that. I encourage you to memorize it. Remember, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And three, we saw in all of this, we're not worthy. But as we conclude, I want to say one last quick thing, because I think if John the Baptist were sitting right there and listening to this message, and it ended there, I actually think he'd be a tad upset. I don't think he'd be very happy. Why? Because this far, we've spent our whole message talking about John the Baptist. I don't, I don't think he liked that very much, as we can tell from his life. Now, on the one hand, that's, that's okay, right? God does set forth him as an example, but we can't end there because of this. I want you to realize this. John's humility didn't come from John focusing on John. John's humility didn't come from John focusing on John, and our humility won't come from us focusing on ourselves, I think it's a good way to end because this applies so well. I've fallen into this trap before. I'm sure you have too. We can become so focused on wanting to be humble, on wanting to be loving, on wanting to become better Christians, that as we're doing that, as we're going through that process, the whole time we're focusing on ourselves. We can want to become known as that humble guy or that humble girl or that loving guy or that loving girl that the whole time as we're pursuing it, we're focusing on ourselves. It's twisted, but it happens, doesn't it? And so here's the point. John the Baptist wasn't humble mainly because he was trying to be. He was humble because he focused on Jesus. Now, of course, we need to fight pride. Some of you here this morning maybe really need to hear that. We need to seek out pride. We need to talk to people who know us best, especially our spouses, and ask, in what ways can we be more humble? But what will make us humble, selfless, loving, is focusing on Jesus. That's what John did. That's what we should be doing too. For our humility, for our joy, let's focus on Christ. I encourage you, figure out how you can do that more. Read about Him. Seek to obey Him, even when it's hard. Pray to Him. Use your brains to think about Him. But I want to end here now with a quote. Close with a quote. This is a quote from a preacher from the 1800s. His name was Robert Murray McShane. And it summarizes much of our time together. And it's practical, I think, for us. It's practical for us as we seek to not be the Christ, to point to Christ, and to do it all by focusing on Christ. So we'll close with this. Here's what McShane says to us. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Let's pray. Oh, King Jesus, we do praise you 
for this example, yes, of this man that you enabled to be such a humble example for us, John the Baptist, who you said, Jesus, was unlike any other man. Help us, Christ, to follow his example. Help us to be humble. Oh, Jesus, how much pride has just been eating it, I'm sure, all of our lives. Help it, Christ, to be killed. But Christ, in it all, most importantly, help us to focus on you. Help us every day to realize that we're not the Christ, that we weren't made to be the Savior. And help us, Jesus, to live certain lives that just show people you, show ourselves you. And Christ, I just pray for anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, who's striving for joy and happiness and other things beside you. Jesus, just draw them towards you. Let them see what you did on the cross, how loving and humble and sacrificial you are. Let them see that you're alive right now, Jesus, and that you love them very much. But Jesus, for us, your church, help us to live lives that trust you and show the world that you are better than anything the world can offer. We need you, King Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And it's in this time now that we have the privilege to come to the table, to come to the table. And it's fitting because we just talked about how the Christ came, how the Lord came. And what this reminds us is that he came, and when he came, he decided to go to the cross. This is essentially a symbolic representation of the gospel, that God came to earth, and when he did, he went to the cross for his people, his body was broken. He hung there on that cross. His blood 